Well, as we continue in this narrative, Jesus is headed towards the cross. He is headed towards his crucifixion. He is headed towards the focal point of his mission, of his incarnation. There are issues that are brought up in today's text, the text that Andre just read, that recall a scene with Jesus, with his disciples, perhaps only a few weeks before, maybe a couple months. And there's a great deal of similarity between these two scenes. So to prompt our minds, I believe Matthews intentionally would have us remember this scene that he's recounted. And so to prompt our minds, to get our minds ready for seeing the similarities and differences, I want to go ahead and read that for you. And that is Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 13 through 28. Again, I want you to just think and observe the things that are in this scene in Matthew 16 because there are a great deal of similarities and differences with what's going to happen in Jesus' trial. And we're going to draw some of those comparisons and contrasts as we go. So remember, a few weeks, maybe a couple months before, here's what happened. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised." And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now I read that at length because as we work through today's scene, Maybe you're already drawing some of the correspondences, but there are a great deal of similarities and differences. This has been the highlight in Matthew 16. It was the high point of the gospel, in a sense, with Jesus' disciples, because Peter confesses rightfully that Jesus is the Christ. What is the Christ? For the Christ is the King, the King of Israel, and the King, uh, the one who is to sit on David's throne, not only over Israel, but also over the whole world. But even in Matthew 16, there is um, some disturbing things, some things that make us think that Peter's thinking not quite right. 
Because he goes on and immediately rebukes Jesus for saying that he's going to suffer and die. And Peter in turn rebukes, or Jesus in turn rebukes Peter and says, you're setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. Meaning what? Jesus sees that Peter is misconceiving of what it means to be the Christ and also what that means for Peter. Why is Peter following Jesus? And as we walk at, watch Peter's characterization through the gospel, we see that he's interested in following Jesus because Jesus is going to have this glorious kingdom and Peter's going to get to be part of it. Peter's going to be able to partake in some of those things that are glorious in following the Christ. But there's this, this disconnect, there's these dissonances with Peter that ultimately culminate in today's scene. In a sense, Peter is an exemplar of Matthew's Jewish audience, or at least the natural response that Matthew's Jewish audience would have to the suffering and humiliation of the Messiah. That idea is, as we've been saying, as we've gone along, would have been a stumbling block, uh, something that is just unfathomable to Matthew's audience. The Christ, the exalted one, who's going to reign over Israel and the world, he's going to suffer and die, and not only suffer and die, but suffer and die by crucifixion. And so as we've been saying, as Matthew uh, walks us towards the cross, he is highlighting those things. He's showing that actually, far from discrediting Jesus to be the Messiah, the things that happen into and leading up to his death actually show that he is the Messiah. And that's what continues today, but specific in some sense to what is going on with Peter. See, what Matthew's going to lay out for us today is, yes, it's about Jesus, and it is about Jesus going to the cross, but in some sense, Peter is the focal point of what happens in today, or at least his response and how that relates to Matthew's audience. And so the big idea for this morning as we come to the text is this, claiming Jesus as your king claiming Jesus to be the Christ. That's what it means to claim Jesus to be the Christ. It means to claim that Jesus is the king. Claiming Jesus as your king means embracing his humiliation to an unjust death. Claiming Jesus as your king means embracing his humiliation to an unjust death. I don't know if you fully grasp the strangeness of what we confess, even in our own culture and time, even what we just sung, the power of the cross, singing about a man being nailed to a hunk of wood and being executed as a state rebel, and with no current presentation or evidence that this is indeed a king. I mean, we gather and we, we worship this king as king, and yet, in a sense, there is no visible display of this king's reign. All that there is is looking back at history and seeing crucifixion, and we would say his resurrection and ascension, but it's not visible, his reign. So, in a sense, this is strange. It was strange to Matthew's original audience. It ought to be strange to us, but that's what embracing Jesus to be king means. It means embracing, not just saying, oh, yeah, yeah, that happened, but embracing the humiliation of the Christ, of Jesus, to an unjust death. And so as we will see that as we walk through Jesus' trial this morning, and really there's two trials. There's a trial for Peter and there's a trial for Jesus. 
So let's start um, this morning by looking at verses 57 and 58, only the first two verses, and we're going to see this. Claiming Jesus as your king cannot be based on immediate outcomes. Claiming Jesus as your king cannot be based on immediate outcomes. So Jesus has been seized. He's been arrested in Gethsemane on Mount of Olives. They've led him back into the city. And where do they lead him? We pick up the story in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. So they go to Caiaphas's house, probably a pretty big house. Caiaphas is um, uh, he's the chief priest. He's the high priest, probably a wealthy, well-to-do person. Uh, they, uh, there's, there's examples, even that they've excavated in archaeology, uh, of, of these sorts of houses. He's well-to-do, big courtyards, big spaces where people can gather. And here we see the scribes and the elders, the leaders of Israel that'll form the, what's known as the Sanhedrin, this council that is going to make decisions legal decisions internal to the Jewish community. That's what's beginning to happen. So Jesus moves into this house, big spaces, lots of people gathered. But notice this. It's not just about where Jesus is going. It's about where Peter is going. Verse 58. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Remember what Peter has just claimed uh, in the last couple of weeks. Remember, Jesus had told his disciples, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to stumble. You're all going to be offended by me in such a way that you're going to be scattered. And Peter, uh, Mr. Vocal, um, is, spoke up on behalf of the rest of the disciples. And he said, I'm not going to fall away, even if everyone else does. And then Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, even if I have to die, I'm not going to deny you. He is proclaiming that I'm with you, Jesus. You're the king. I'm going to follow you even to death. But here we already see a troubled picture, though Peter had, although Matthew doesn't recount it, other uh, gospel accounts say that it was Peter who drew the sword in Gethsemane. He was ready to fight for his Lord, but now Jesus has surrendered. He's come quietly to go to his death. And now we start to see Peter following at a distance. That's significant because this idea of being a disciple is what? Being a follower and a learner of Jesus. Following is what disciples do. But here what we see is Peter is following, but tentatively, at a distance. And notice what he is doing. He goes. I mean, to Peter's credit, everyone else is gone at this point, although we find out from other accounts that John is still there. But at least how Matthew presents it, everyone else is gone, and it's just Peter, and he's at least hanging in there following Jesus. But notice his motivation. So he goes in. He's following the crowd. Evidently, he kind of sneaks in, um, and he sneaks in. It's a big house. He goes into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sits down with kind of the rest of the underlings. That's the idea. It's not so much the guards necessarily, although it could be guards. It's just the rest of the underlings that are milling about, the servants who are going there. He is there sitting, but why? why? What's he doing? What's his motivation? Well, it says it. He sat down with the rest of the servants to do what? To see the outcome. You might say, in your, your translation might say, to see the end, but really say the idea, the outcome. What's the goal of all this? What's it all reaching? What's it all culminating towards? See, Peter is tentative at this point. It's like, well, he's been arrested. 
he hasn't been convicted yet, although he must know uh, that, uh, at least at some level, that the aim of the high priest is conviction. But perhaps, perhaps justice will prevail and Jesus will be released. See, he's trying to see the outcome of the trial. He's evidently in a spot, and this is how Matthew presents it. He's in a spot in the house to where he can either see or overhear the trial as it is happening. What Matthew essentially does for us is he puts us into Peter's shoes. Peter is there following to see the outcome. And then immediately in verse 59, which we'll get to in a second, we see the trial, which is what Peter's also looking at. He's looking at the trial to see what's going to happen. What's the outcome? Which is also concerning. Peter's following at a distance, and he's tentative. He's, he's following Jesus, but he's kind of dependent on how things are going to go. It's dependent on what's the outcome going to be. Is he going to be released? Yeah, I'm going to be right there with him if he's released. I'll be right back at his side. Because he's been released, he's going to go to the throne as the rightful king. Or, beyond all expectation, is he going to be convicted? See, Peter is kind of holding his options open at this point, it seems. And really, in some sense, Matthew is drawing in his audience to get them to think about you claim a Messiah. You claim or want to follow Messiah. You're looking for a Messiah. Maybe you even claim that it's Jesus. But the question is for Peter, and the question is for Matthew's audience, will they show allegiance to Jesus as king only when things are going well for him? Only when he looks like the exalted king that he is? Or are they going to follow him because of who he is. There's a very great difference between following someone because of what you think you can get out of it versus following Jesus for who he is, his inherent value, his inherent worth. And what we see with Peter, and linking back to even what we saw in some of Peter's characterization in Matthew 16, Peter doesn't fully embrace what Jesus has said being the Christ means. Being the Christ means suffering and dying for his people's sins. Peter's rejecting that, pushing against that. And not only that, but Jesus says about Peter back in Matthew 16, you're thinking about the things of man. You're thinking about what you can get out of it. And we see that playing its way out, and we will continue to see it play its way out in the rest of what happens. But the questions for us are, even at this point, do you follow Jesus because of who he is, because of his inherent value, because he is the rightful king, because he is the glorious king, because he is the God-man, because he is God the Son incarnate, because of who he is, are you fixated on him, or do you follow him because of what he can give you? And the answer to that question will, will lead you to either following in Peter's fate or following all the way to the end? Are you following Jesus at a distance to see what the outcome will be? You see, we, what does that look like in, 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 in practical terms? Well, I mean, you, you might come and you might be part of church. And you might sit in here and you might sing the songs even. You might hang out with people. But the question is, is it at a distance? Are you committed 
are you committed to Jesus? Are you sold out for Jesus no matter what? Or will you only follow when things are positive? When it's easy to follow Jesus? When it's comfortable? When it makes sense? Are you following at a distance? Or are you going to follow Jesus because of who he is? So already, even in these first couple verses, Matthew is setting up, he's setting up a trial for Peter that he brings us into. He effectively puts us as readers into Peter's shoes. Peter wants to see the outcome of the trial. So now next, Matthew moves us into the trial in verses 59 through 68. And what we see in this segment is this, that claiming Jesus as your king embraces the path of humiliation than exaltation. Claiming Jesus as your king embraces the path of humiliation than exaltation. So in a sense, we're putting on Peter's eyes and we're looking into the trial. And we see this, what happens, starting in verse 59. Now, the chief priests and the whole council, the council there um, is the Sanhedrin, this official council who makes um, rulings, official rulings on behalf of the Jews in at least Jerusalem, if not the broader area. And um, so uh, some people argue, well, is this an official meeting of the Sanhedrin? Is it not? Well, the people are there. They're expecting to, uh, they're, they're carrying out a trial of sorts. So this is official proceedings of some sort by the leadership of the Jews, the leadership of Jerusalem, and by extension, the leadership of Israel. Now, you have to keep in mind, uh, what, what, what authority do they have? Because Rome, Rome is actually in charge. Uh, but Rome had delegated a certain amount of authority to the Sanhedrin, to the priests, to this council to decide cases. But notice what these, this council is seeking. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. A couple things to notice. First, they're seeking a death penalty, and Rome didn't delegate the authority to give a death penalty. What the Sanhedrin is going to have to do, if and when they find uh, the, the, the evidence to support the conviction that they want, they're going to have to bring that, as they do, before Pilate, uh, to say, hey, uh, we have found this person, we've tried him, and uh, he's worthy of death. We need to, and they're going to need to convince Pilate that, yeah, Rome needs to execute this guy. But the second thing you notice is this is a rigged trial from the get-go. This is not a fair trial. Uh, the conviction has already been decided. We need the evidence to support that conviction. That is what is happening. So Matthew is letting us know as the narrator that uh, this is, from the get-go, not a just trial, not a fair trial. Justice is not being sought here. Conviction and death is being sought. What is being sought is the evidence to then support a capital punishment, the death penalty. So what do they do? They seek false testimony. They need witnesses. They need witnesses. What they need in Jewish law, and we've even seen this in Matthew, in Jewish law, you need two or three witnesses, at least two, that agree in their testimony. So they need testimony by at least two witnesses, and it needs to be testimony to uh, crimes, supposed crimes that Jesus committed that are worthy of the death penalty. So they need two things, not only testimony that agrees, but testimony that is sufficient enough to show that Jesus is worthy of death. They need those two things. And they're seeking false witnesses. They're trying to gather it together, but they can't 
find it. They're doing this. And the idea is the, the verb that's here, they were seeking. It took time. They were doing this over and over again. They were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none though many false witnesses came forward. So people are coming forward, they're testifying one thing, then this person comes forward, they testify something else, oh, it doesn't agree, uh, oh, that's not sufficient to convict Jesus. So this is going on for some time. This is going on for some time. All these false witnesses coming forward can't get the two things to match. But, end of verse 60, at last two came forward. So here are the two they're looking for. And said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, the way Matthew has framed things, he is showing that these two agree in their testimony. But given how he has said that they're seeking false testimony, and he's saying that many false witnesses are coming forward, we are to understand that though these two agree, their testimony about Jesus is false. In other words, Jesus never said this. Now you might say, well, what about John 2.19? What about John 2.19? Because John 2.19 recounts Jesus saying to the Jews in the temple at some point, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. But you will notice there's a slight difference in wording. Jesus says, you guys destroy the temple and I will build it in three days. What are these guys saying? This one said, I'm able to destroy the temple and in three days build it back up. Jesus never said this. In no accounts that we have of the gospels did Jesus say these words. And it, Matthew was saying, look, these two are just another couple false witnesses. But in this case, their testimony agrees. But remember, it's not just enough that their testimony agrees the, what Jesus is accused of, what they testify to, has to be substantial enough to warrant the death penalty. So you might be scratching your heads like, well, wait a minute. Uh, why would Jesus talk about destroying the temple be considered worthy for the death penalty? Well, think about what Jesus, if, if this had Jesus had said this, which he hadn't, if Jesus had said this and he hadn't, what is he saying? He's saying, I, I am able, I have the, the power, the capacity, the ability to destroy the temple of God. The word here that's used for temple is the sanctuary itself. Remember when we talked about the temple complex is a big old complex, but right in the middle is the sanctuary itself, the holy place and the holy of holies. But what is Jesus saying? I have the ability to destroy this thing and within a span of three days to build it back. Well, first, it sounds like when you talk about attacking the temple, you're attacking the beating heart of Israel's life as a nation. This is the focal point of Israel's connection with God. You're attacking the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth. You're saying you have the ability to do that. And yeah, you say that you can build it again in three days, but you are claiming for yourselves an absurd amount of authority which is bordering on, as we will see, blasphemy. This is a serious charge. If you want another example of someone in scripture who uh, claimed that the temple was going to be destroyed and he was threatened with death by it, you go back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7. Um, Jeremiah speaks against the temple. He says, you guys shouldn't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, uh, because of your wickedness, God is actually going to destroy this temple. And they almost killed him for it. 
And it's the same thing here. Even if Jesus had said this, which Matthew isn't, uh, is, is not indicating that he has, but he is threatening the beating heart of Israel. It's almost like he's threatening, threatening God in a sense, or at the very least, claiming a great deal of authority that no human being ought to have. So that is the charge that is being brought by these two witnesses. It's substantial enough for now the high priest to enter the fray. The high priest is kind of the presiding president in the sense of the assembly of this council. And the high priest stood up. Caiaphas stands up and says, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? So what is he effectively saying? He's like, if this is, if you really said this, this is a charge you should answer because it's not looking good for you. That's what Caiaphas is bringing up. What is it that these men, t- men testify against you? Defend yourself. Speak about it. Now, what is Caiaphas's tactic here? We know what Caiaphas wants. He wants Jesus dead. He wants Jesus to speak. Evidently, Jesus isn't speaking, and in fact, that's reinforced here in a second. Uh, Jesus isn't speaking, but why does Caiaphas want him to get Jesus to speak up? Because Caiaphas is going to take whatever Jesus says and twist it and make it sound worse and make it convict Jesus. That's Caiaphas's plan. Yes, in a sense, he wants Jesus to say, this is a substantial charge, you need to answer it, but he's trying to get Jesus to speak so that he condemns himself right then and there in the midst. But what happens Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. Why? Why does Jesus remain silent? Why doesn't he defend himself? Well, in a sense, you could kind of compare this to what happened in Gethsemane, right? Remember what Jesus said in Gethsemane when uh, they arrest him, they grab hold of him, uh, the, the disciple cuts off someone else's ear, and what does Jesus say? It's like, don't you think I could, I could call down a whole... Uh, I could call down legions of angels to defuse the situation. I could win. I could fight and win. Jesus could do the same thing in his trial. He could speak back. He could defend himself, and he could win. But he's not. Why? Well, for the same reason that he didn't fight back in Gethsemane. He is surrendered to the Father's plan. He is surrendered to being tried by wicked men, ultimately to be crucified. And in so doing, he is fulfilling one of the things that Isaiah's suffering servant does. You can turn briefly, if you want, back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 describes the Davidic king who's going to die in place of many, not only Israel, but from among the nations. And in the middle of this, in Isaiah 53, 7, we get this description of the suffering servant in his road towards death. Isaiah 53, 7. He, this is the servant, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? 
Jesus is fulfilling that in that very moment. He is being taken, tried by oppression, by judgment. He is, he is um, being uh, unjust, great injustice is being done against him. Um, things that he never said are being brought against him. What is he doing? He's being silent, surrendered to the Father's plan because this is the Father's plan to be tried, to be falsely condemned. But the high priest needs him to speak. He needs him to speak. And so what does the high priest do next? Look at verse 63. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, which, what does that mean to adjure him? It means uh, Caiaphas is putting him under oath. He's he's saying, I'm calling you under oath to speak. I'm putting you under oath by the living God. So Caiaphas is calling by the highest authority. And he's saying, I'm calling you to swear and to speak by the highest authority. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now that should sound very, very familiar, shouldn't it? Based on what we read in Matthew 16. It's the, basically the identical confession that Peter has already made in Matthew 16. It's a focal point, a high point in the gospel when Peter as a disciple declares this. And now in the very moment of humiliation, in the very moment of injustice, in the very moment when Jesus is headed to the cross, the same issue of identity comes up, and it comes up from, in a, you could argue, the head guy in Israel, the high priest, the leader of Israel, political and spiritual, in a sense, in the middle of the council of Israel, the, the, those leaders and shepherds of Israel that Jesus has decried, he asks him the question about identity. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And again, remember what that question means. Being the Christ means you are the heir to the Davidic throne. Not only over Israel, but all the world. The Son of God, the way Caiaphas is using it, he's not talking about Jesus' divinity. uh, The Son of God is a synonym for being the Davidic heir. Because in 2 Samuel 7, when God is talking about the Davidic covenant, he's putting it into place. He talks about the Davidic kings as those who have a father-son relationship with him. And so he is asking the question, are you the Christ? Are you the Davidic heir? Because that has been the question all along. There, it's been hinted. It's been rumored. Are you the son of, uh, is he the son of David? Is this the one? And the high priest cuts to the chase and he asks this question. Now, you might be scratching your head a minute and saying, wait, 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 wait. I thought we were talking about the temple. I mean, that was what the charge was from the two. I thought we were talking about the temple and Jesus destroying the temple and building it. How does he jump from that to, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Well, what you also have to recognize is that the sign of the Davidic covenant is the temple. The Davidic kings are to be temple builders. You can even think of David and his son Solomon. They, in essence, they, they destroyed, put out of function the old tabernacle, and they brought in a new temple. And that is exactly what he's been accused of. That you claim yourself the authority to destroy this current temple and build another? The only one who has that kind of authority is the ultimate Davidic king, the Christ. And so it's not a non sequitur. There is a link between what he's been accused of. But Caiaphas cuts to the chase. 
If you claim for yourself that kind of authority, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus finally speaks at the perfect moment. Verse 64. Jesus said to him, and what you need to know, you can't see it in English, but Matthew uses a verbal form here that highlights that this is the most important statement in this section. Matthew's drawing our attention. He's highlighting what Jesus says. Right in the middle of an unjust trial, right in the middle of humiliation, what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, you have said it. Which on the surface is kind of ambiguous, right? But it is an affirmation. Jesus saying, yeah, you said it. We say that even now, right? Uh, um, You just said it. But what is Jesus doing? He's saying, you brought up the the accusation. You brought up the issue of if I'm the Christ and the Son of God. You're right. You're the one who brought it up. Deflecting responsibility back to Caiaphas. That's the first thing he says. He affirms that, yes, he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Pilate, uh, not Pilate, Caiaphas has said it. So he speaks to Caiaphas first, and then he adds to it. But when he adds to it, the next thing that he says is not spoken just to Caiaphas. It is spoken to everyone there present. You can't see it in your English text, but the you changes from a singular you to a plural you, and it's very clear that that is the case in the original. So, Jesus answers Caiaphas, you said it, Caiaphas. And then he speaks more broadly to the whole council, the next thing that he says. You said it, Caiaphas, but I tell you, from now, you all will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he's declaring that to the whole council. What is he doing? He's saying, yeah, you've declared that I'm the Christ and the Son of God, and you've said that, and you're right, but let me give you some more information about the kind of Christ that I am. And what he says is he's the Son of Man, and he alludes to two Old Testament texts. First, when he says that you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power, he is alluding to Psalm 110, verse 1 which Jesus brought up at the end of chapter 22 when discussing with the Pharisees, whose son is the Christ. And Psalm 110 speaks of the Christ, the ultimate Davidic king, the one whom David calls my Lord, my master, sitting at the right hand of God as the rightful ruler. He is associated with God. And arguably, even in Psalm 110, uh, David's Lord is called divine. He's sitting at the right hand of power, and he is the one who's going to execute God's rule and reign over the earth. That's the first text he alludes to, Psalm 110, verse 1. The next, coming on the clouds of heaven, he is alluding to Daniel 7, 13 through 14, where we get this picture of all of the kingdoms of the world and their horrible-looking beasts, but the final kingdom comes when the Ancient of Days sits on earth, and then the one like a son of man comes with the clouds. In the ancient Near East, the riding on the clouds meant you were divine. 
coming to the Ancient of Days, coming to the Father and receiving the kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm the Christ. I'm the king. You said it, uh, you said it Caiaphas. And I'm the divine king. I am the divine Messiah. I am the one that Psalm 110 spoke of. I am the one that Daniel 7, 13 through 14 speaks of. I am that guy. Now, remember the scene, okay? Here is Jesus of Nazareth, a human. Yes, we know as the readers of Matthew, he is the God-man. We understand that. But by all external appearances, He's a human, and he is, in the middle of a trial, maybe as much as 70 people. That was the full Sanhedrin, 71 people. And he's on trial. And here are all the bigwigs. Here are all the authorities in Israel arrayed against him. And they're trying him. And he in that moment, has this moment, he has made the most public declaration of his entire ministry of who he is. He has owned the reality that he is the Christ. He is saying he is the rightful rulers of all those people who are trying him. He is saying that one day the tables are going to be turned and I'm going to be coming and I'm the one who's going to be the rightful ruler at God's coming from God's right hand, the right hand of power. Uh, God's going to give me authority. The father's going to give me authority to rule you, rule Israel, rule the nations. Because I'm not just the Davidic king. I'm the divine Davidic king. And he says this in the moment of his greatest humiliation. I mean, just think of the paradox here. He is humble. He is lowly. He is in, uh, headed to the cross. He is in the moment of greatest injustice. And this is when he makes his greatest statement of here's who I am. It's perfect because as Jesus said back in Matthew 16, again, this is why I took you there at the beginning. What did Jesus say? Part of being the Messiah the part that the disciples didn't get is you go through humiliation to get to exaltation. The Messiah goes through the cross to get the crown. Now, what does he mean, you will see? Because he says that, from now, you're going to see um, me doing this. Well, remember, he's not just speaking to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin died. All those room, people in the room died, and Jesus hadn't come back yet. So what does he mean? He's not just speaking to the Sanhedrin. What does the Sanhedrin represent? The Sanhedrin represent Israel. And just like he has said earlier in the gospel, he's saying effectively, you as the representatives of Israel, Sanhedrin, Israel's going to see me again. And the next time it's going to see me, I'm going to look like this. I'm going to show externally who I am as the rightful king. Caiaphas has exactly what he wants now, from his perspective. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. Now, what does he mean by that, that he's uttered blasphemy? Because, well, Caiaphas asked him, are you the Christ, the son of God? He brought it up and Jesus deflects that. But then what did Jesus add? He added this statement of, let's talk about what kind of Christ I am. I'm the divine Christ. I am David's son, but I am also David's Lord. 
I am David's master. He has associated himself with God. He has said he is the one riding on the clouds as the divine son of man. So yes, he has effectively claimed deity. That is what Caiaphas hears. And from his perspective, it's what he wants. He's utter blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. The idea is he's liable to death. What they have heard in session there, they've all heard it. He has claimed to be God. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Yeah, Jesus has claimed to be God. He is acclaimed to have be the divine son of man, the divine son of God. He has claimed all of this, the divine Davidic king. And that would be blasphemous. Unless it's true. Unless it's true. What are, the only way they can claim this is blasphemy is by automatically assuming that the human person that sits in front of them can't possibly be who they claim to be. They dismiss him out of hand. Doesn't matter all the stuff he's done in his ministry. They've dismissed all of that. Why have they dismissed all of that? Because he has threatened their authority. He has threatened their authority, their control over the temple, his control over Israel. That's why they are doing this. He's liable to death. This is the charge from the Jewish perspective that Jesus will be crucified, um, killed by. That he claimed to be the divine Messiah. He committed blasphemy. He deserves death. That is the judgment of the highest court in Israel at this time. And then they proceed to humiliate him further. Verse 67. Then they spit in his face, slapped him. Some struck him. And the idea there is the word usually indicates being struck with a stick saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. See, they understood his claims. They understood that he was claiming to be the Christ, but they also attribute to him this ability, some supernatural ability um, as a messenger of God to prophesy to it, but they're twisting it and they're just making a sadistic joke. They strike him. They spit on him. If you're going to claim to be the Christ, who is it that struck you? Show us. They're just mocking him. But even in this... Even in this, Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. You see, remember what I said? Matthew's audience is a Jewish audience. They're going to struggle with a crucified Messiah. But as Matthew was laying it out, he is showing at each and every stage that, no, what has happened to Jesus in his humiliation doesn't discount him from being the Messiah. It shows that he's the Messiah. Go back to Isaiah 50. Again, another passage speaking of the suffering servant, this time a different one. Isaiah 50, verse verses 4 through 9. The suffering servant is speaking here. He says this, The Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So that's articulating the submission of the suffering servant to God. The Lord Yahweh has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord Yahweh helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. 
Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord Yahweh helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Do you want to know what Jesus was thinking when all of this was happening? He was thinking this, that though he had just been condemned by the leaders of Israel, in an unjust way, he knew that God would vindicate him. He was trusting God. He was trusting his father going through the humiliation that would lead to his exaltation. What is Matthew doing for his audience and for us? Matthew is showing his Jewish audience that if you're going to embrace Jesus as Messiah, they're going to embrace, you need to embrace him because of his humiliation and death. You need to not just say, oh, yeah, 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 Jesus suffered and died, and that's bad, but we got over that. No, it's the very act of his humiliation and death that makes him, it shows him to be the Messiah. This is where Jesus publicly declares his exalted identity in his greatest humiliation. It would be absurd looking at this scene to claim Jesus is the king unless he actually is, unless we have seen all that we have seen in the rest of Matthew, that this is the rightful king. He is truly the king, and yet he is going through this humiliation, and you need to embrace him. You need to claim him even in that humiliation. It's not that claiming that Jesus as the exalted Messiah is wrong. Jesus will be exalted. Jesus will reign. Jesus will come as he said but it's this, the path of exalt, to exaltation is through humiliation, and you can't have one without the other. That's true for Jesus, and that's true for his followers. If you claim Jesus as king, you can't brush aside the cross. You can't brush aside the humiliation that he went through to die for his people, for your and my sins on the cross. You can't sweep that under the rug. You can't say, oh yeah, 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 well, that's kind of bad. We won't think about that. No, it is the very thing that you must embrace if you are to embrace Jesus as Messiah. And then you not only embrace it for Jesus, you embrace it as a disciple, that the path to exaltation, the path to enjoying God forever, the path to the new heavens and the new earth only comes through humiliation now, just as Jesus did. As a follower of Jesus, you follow his path. Humiliation, abasement, then exaltation. You get nothing in this time, in this age. You have no rights. The world will be against you. There is nothing you can expect in terms of exaltation and goods and comfort in this age and time. Jesus made that very clear through Matthew, but you play the long game because you know your Messiah, your King, follow the path of humiliation and will come back in exaltation. And that is the same hope for you. Jesus is now at this very moment at the right hand of the Father. He is at the right hand of power and he will come again on the clouds of heaven. He will be vindicated before the world we will be vindicated before the world. The tables will be turned for those who have scoffed at him and his claims of kingship. 
Think of all of in our society and our culture who scoff at Jesus, scoff at him being a king, scoff at the cross. All of that will be reversed, but you have to wait for the vindication until he comes back. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're a scoffer. Maybe you think this is ridiculous. But friend, I call you to bow the knee now. Jesus calls you to bow the knee now while Jesus is at the right hand of God as not only a a king, but as an intercessor, the, the high priest for his people. He died, he went through that humiliation to die for the sins of his people, to be their righteousness in their place so that he could forgive your sins as a rebel. Bow the knee, repent and trust Jesus. Have allegiance to Jesus. Bow in subjugation, bow in allegiance to Jesus now, lest you bow in subjugation in the future. Claiming Jesus as your king embraces the path of humiliation and then exaltation. Well, we've seen the outcome of the trial, and remember, Matthew put us into the eyes of Peter, and now we go back to Peter. What's Peter going to do? Verses 69 through 75, claiming Jesus as your king identifies with him despite the risk and shame. Claiming Jesus as your king identifies with him despite the risk and shame. Look at verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. We, we know that. Back in verse 58, he, uh, he was sitting there to do what? To see the outcome. Now he's seen the outcome. Jesus is condemned. He's condemned under the charge of claiming to be the Messiah, which, which was Peter's hope, Peter's confession, and even just a few weeks ago. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl, actually, the, the text is like literally one little servant girl, came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. So she addresses him directly. He's sitting down there. And we've got one little servant girl comes up and is like, hey, hey, that guy in there, you, you were with him, right? Now think about what just happened. We just heard the verdict. Jesus is, being, is condemned to death. Peter has seen that outcome. So now all of a sudden being associated with Jesus, uh, you could earn the same fate. Recognize that that is going on. And because of that, this is what he says, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you mean. See, being associated with Jesus now is dangerous because Jesus is being crucified. Now, you will notice as things progress, there's an escalation. Well, you had one little servant girl addressing Peter. There might be some people who overheard, but she's making a charge like, you're with that guy, right? Uh, no, 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 I'm not. That guy that just got condemned, I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 71, and when he went out to the entrance, so now he moves kind of farther out, out into an entryway, still a large space probably, another servant girl, so another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, so now she's not speaking to Peter directly, now she's speaking to the bystanders, he's gathering a crowd. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again, he denied it with an oath. So there's an escalation. There's an escalation in what Peter's being accused of, and there's an escalation in how he responds. Because now he calls down an oath. Right? He's saying, I, I, I bind myself with an oath. I don't know this man. I'm repudiating him. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not associated with him. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, see the escalation? Now it's not a servant girl. Now we got a whole group approaching Peter 
and, uh, and, and, and calling him on this. Certainly you too are not one of them for your accent betrays you. The, there was a different accent in the northern part of Israel than the southern part. And so they just assume, well, you've got a northern accent. Uh, you must be a Galilean and you must be a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. And then what does Peter do? You've got this crowd of people. They're accusing him of being associated with Jesus. He began to invoke a curse on himself. The idea is, is that if what I am saying and swearing and taking an oath by, if I'm false, may I be cursed. That's the idea. I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Jesus remember, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. It's verbatim what Jesus said. So it's early morning now. That's why the rooster's crowing. But it's exactly what Jesus had said. In the very act of Peter denying Jesus, repudiating Jesus, walking away from Jesus, Jesus proves that he's the Messiah. Peter goes out and weeps bitterly because he understands, I, he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He's confessed him to be the Messiah. He did so, but he has publicly repudiated him because why? Because he had the wrong conception of what the Messiah is. Remember what he said back in Matthew 16. This is not going to happen to you, Lord. You're not going to suffer and die. You're not going to be uh, unjustly treated at the hands of the leadership of Israel. He had the wrong conception. And also the wrong motivation. Because what does Jesus rebuke him for back in Matthew 16? You're setting your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. And Peter kept following, even following from a distance at the beginning, until it became clear that uh, this is not what I counted on the Messiah being. And he is in humiliation. There's nothing I can get from this anymore. In some ways, it's very similar to Judas. When Judas saw that the Messiah was going down in flames, he betrayed him to get some money off of him because he was trying to get what he could out of the Messiah as well. Very similar to Judas. And yet Peter knows he weeps bitterly. He knows he's the Messiah. He's in his very last act of denial and the fulfillment of what Jesus has said. Even in Jesus' humiliation and going to the cross, he has showed that he is the Messiah. And yet Peter has repudiated him. What is your conception of Jesus? And what is your motivation for following Jesus? Because your answer to those things will determine if you're going to follow in Peter's denial or not. Is Jesus your king? The one who humiliated himself to pay for your sin? Do you own that Jesus humiliated himself? went through the gravest sort of injustice and mockery, and as we will see, the, as we saw last week, the drinking of the Father's wrath. Do you embrace that about Jesus, or do you just kind of sweep that under the rug? I don't want to talk about that. I'm not that bad. You got, if you're going to embrace Jesus as king, you've got to embrace that he humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross for your sin. Or maybe you're fine with Jesus being your savior, but not your king. Maybe it's the reverse of that. He is both. 
He is both. Do you think of Jesus rightly? And then along with Peter, we could ask this question, do you follow Jesus because what he can do for you? Or because he is the greatest treasure who deserves your worship, your allegiance, no matter what? If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to embrace the risk of shame and condemnation in following him. Peter repudiated that, even though he had said, I'm going to, I'm going to die with you. And we would all want to say that. That's not a bad sentiment, right? We would want to say, I would die rather than deny Jesus. But what, wait, how is Peter going about it? Self-reliance, self-dependence. None of us can claim that unless we are empowered looking to Jesus as our treasure, looking to him as our king, seeing him in his humiliation and then looking forward to his exaltation, depending on him, depending on the resources he gives through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life to continue to follow Jesus. Will you embrace the risk of shame and condemnation in following Jesus? Let's put it down to very practical terms in your life. Do people around you know that you follow Jesus? and that you treasure him? Or does fear hold you back? You could say it like this. Uh, Andre asked this question a couple weeks ago. Could someone out you as a Christian? Why not? If not, why not? Why couldn't someone out you as a Christian? Could be the same fear and shame and risk of shame that Peter was experiencing. But again, you can't just muster up some self-reliance like Peter tried to. It's by the power of the Spirit, seeing the value of Jesus and being willing to associate with him and his people no matter what. Jesus redeems Peter. And then you see in Acts what a Spirit-empowered individual can do. The end of John, Jesus tells Peter after he's been restored, uh, you're going to stretch out your hands and someone's going to take you where you don't want to go. And John says that's to portray what kind of death Peter's going to go to. Church tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. Why? Not because Peter got a lot of better self-reliance, but because he saw the value of his Savior. He embraced the humiliation of Jesus to die for his sin, his betrayal even. And he filled him with his spirit to walk and be faithful to Jesus to the end. That is what Jesus the King can do. Claiming Jesus as your King means embracing his humiliation to an unjust death. Let's pray. Jesus, we are weak people and we are rebels and we would do the exact same thing in Peter's shoes. Unless we see you your value as king, your inherent value, not just what you can do for us, but who you are as the God-man, the Christ, the one at the right hand of power, the one who will come again on the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We praise you for humbling yourself to drink the Father's wrath, to go through injustice, to be the sacrificial lamb for our sins. We praise you and we thank you. And we pray for faith. We pray for grace to continually embrace you, 
to celebrate you, to speak of you boldly to those around us, to proclaim your excellencies so that people know who we follow, people know who we treasure. And Lord, we pray even as we would hear mockery and shame upon us because we know that that is coming. We know that it looks foolish in the eyes of the world. Lord, help us to endure those things even to death because of who you are. We know we can only do it by the power of your Spirit working in us, by the work of, by you, Spirit, encouraging, lighting the, the fires of faith in our hearts. So give us the grace to see Jesus for who he is. Give us the grace to show allegiance to the point of death. Give us grace to embrace the shame of Christ's death. Path of humiliation then to exaltation. We praise you that you're coming again. Help us to wait faithfully for your coming. And we ask these things. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.